it's so much easier to scale a company when people already know what the product is. And at no point were we ever in a lane where we had to educate people what a green powder is. <laughs> sure. What, what a workout band is or what a workout program is or what a pre-workout is. Everyone already knew what it was and we just had to say why ours was better. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm your host, Delaney McGuire. Here on the show, we're all about products and people who make an impact interviewing entrepreneurs, VCs, technology experts, growth hackers, marketers, all the people who have mastered the art of creating a ton of impact and income along the way. Why? So that you can do the same. So today on the show, we have Greg Lavecchia. Greg is the founder of Bloom Nutrition, which if you're not familiar, they've started in 2019 and now they are freaking massive. So in just four years, they've scaled to be the number one selling supplement in Target nationwide. They're in Walmart. They crush it on e-commerce. And according to the internet, I didn't get a chance to ask Greg this, uh, they're doing an estimated $23 million in annual revenue, which is crazy for a company that just started a few years ago. So Greg is a marketing expert. He is so intelligent when it comes to growing and scaling brands. They're not only crushing it with ads, but they're also build, they pretty much have a best in class influencer network that they've used to scale. So in this conversation, we talk all things growth and building a DTC consumer brand. Uh, can't encourage you enough to listen to this episode because I learned so much from Greg and he's just a really cool dude. So without further ado, let's jump into this conversation with Greg from Bloom. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's really great. So Greg is obviously the CEO of Bloom Nutrition. Before we go super deep, Greg, why don't you give the audience a little overview on your career in general? So cool. my whole career essentially started with at the time, my girlfriend, now my wife. So we met in college and she went through a fitness transformation when we first started dating. So we're talking like 2017, my wife lost 90 pounds, turned her whole life around outside of just weight loss as well. So a whole wellness journey. And I would, one day she decided to, to, to share that transformation on social media, on Instagram. And it started to pop off a little bit. It got a whole bunch of likes. I think maybe like the Daily Mail even posted it at one point. And she skyrocketed 10,000 followers. And me being like a digital marketing nerd, I was following all the dropshipping YouTubers at the time, still in my dorm room. I was like, let me just throw this on a Facebook ad, now a meta ad, and, and let's see what happens with like a CTA just being go follow Mari. And we started to do that. And everyone started following her. And what was really key about this is her following that's now 1.5 million followers was like a Facebook lookalike audience of women in the United States who are interested in this topic, right? So it's like, that she has the craziest, largest, or the craziest, most niche community of followers on her Instagram page, who are, which is a lot of everything that she's doing. And, you know, none of that would have worked out, of course, if she wasn't making incredible content and she wasn't who she was. But everyone was like, how do I have a similar transformation? So we started selling instant download PDF workout guides for five bucks. They, it was, they DM us, then PayPal us, and we email it to them. And we scaled that up, finally built a website. A few months later, we started selling like elastic booty bands, sold over a million of those things. We're still in the, we're still in the dorm room at this point. All right. Her dad's attic. And like 2018, everyone's, what supplement should I take with these workouts? And so we started formulating a pre-workout. So we launched Bloom Nutrition in 2019 with just three pre-workout flavors. It was basically the inventory was just the minimum order quantity at all the local Northeast manufacturers. And... They sold out right away, scaled up probably horizontally to recovery powders, protein powders, and we were addressing the amazing niche community that she built 
and this was very niche in 2019, even more so than it is today, of women who lift weights, right? And then when we released this greens powder in 2020, overnight, we could tell our customer or Tam went from woman who lifts weights to any woman in the United States. Because anyone who thinks vegetables good for them, didn't matter if they lift weights, didn't matter if they did CrossFit or for whatever it was, this greens powder was for anyone. Anyone could benefit from it. So recognizing the opportunity that we had in front of us, we built what is now probably the largest in-house influencer agency. And we've scaled this company to now a pretty successful omni-channel operation with 90% of our revenue being this green powder behind me on the screen. And so that's where we are today. Very cool. Yeah. Now that you share that, I'm remembering the exact post that I had saw that I brought up before we started recording. So my buddy Ian, he's a really successful digital marketer. He actually shared a case study of how you can break into what seems like a saturated market. And his story was actually you guys breaking into the green powder space and like athletic greens being the predominant, like big name in the space and so many other brands, but literally the fact that you guys were able to find a niche that was untapped and re- not exploits a terrible word because you're adding value, but whatever the positive spin on that word is to, to really create market adoption and whatnot. I'm curious, tactically, what did that look like for you guys? So did it just happen? What do you think you guys did well from a marketing perspective that allowed you to really own that niche and, and create that resonance with the audience? I think having a founder as the fa- or a face of the brand as the founder, which was my wife, Mari, was something that, that this industry and a lot of other industries needed. We're talking about not only a time when you would walk into a vitamin shop or GNC and see red, black, yellow, masculine products, but all of the female brands were, were also owned by men in a boardroom. Right. So for this female owned brand to enter the space with quality products and the vulnerability and community and transparency of the creation of that entire brand from making your LLC to going to the manufacturer and and sharing all of that on social media, it complemented the wave of, of Instagram exploding and now TikTok exploding, as well as just everyone, everyone wanted to see that. And I think a lot of people think they need to come out with this product where they recreate the wheel. But the reality is a saturated market, assuming it's a large market, has the biggest ham for anyone to go take a piece of that market. And our whole career, we never try to recreate the wheel. We just try to see what other people are doing and we do it more creative, faster and transparently and try to find what our differentiation point is going to be. But we're never trying to recreate the wheel. Mm. I love that. that. A lot of people would think you have to start with a product that is like vastly different if you want to be successful. But what I'm hearing you say is, and I see it, you know, being close to a lot of influencers and, and just seeing this market evolve, and even just as consumers, people have this craving for the humanness of like brand relationships. If you're just going to Walgreens and looking at products on a shelf, you have no idea anything about it. You might still buy it if it seems valuable, but if you've listened to podcasts from that person, you feel like a human connection or you're, you're following that journey, you feel like the person, it does make a lot of sense why people are more excited to support that brand and then tell their friends about it. And I'm sure you guys even have a sense of like virality from that. People feel part of a movement. Definitely, definitely. The community is huge. I, I don't think there's other, any other CPG products where they have like an um, to interact with this brand. And I would say, yeah, it's so much easier to scale a company when people already know what the product is. And at no point were we ever in a lane where we had to educate people what a green powder is. <laughs> sure. What a workout band is or what a workout program is or what a pre-workout is. Everyone already knew what it was and we just had to say why ours was better. Mm, love that. Very cool. So you also mentioned you guys have built the largest in-house influencer network, at least in the CPG space. What does that look like? Like, 
how do you guys leverage that and how does it add value to your business? Yeah. So when we were on our, probably our second year of business, we were, it was basically just Maury and I and two other full-time employees who were in part of operations, basically customer service and some consultants. But we were at a point where we're like, wow, this business is now scaling up to, let's say 30 million a year. We need to start growing this team. I need someone from day one who can have access to the bank accounts, understands influencer marketing, understands everything that we're doing here from a supplement side of things. And the only person I could trust was my best friend from high school. And at that point, our best friend who also lived in New York City at the time with us. So Leo, he was working on Wall Street. And I was like, I need you to take what you're doing in the sales room over there on Wall Street and copy and paste that sales room, dare I say boiler room, into an influencer marketing room in Brooklyn. <laughs> And we've scaled that now to eight full-time employees with, a, with an inter-program that complements the scouting of that program, ranging from two to 12 interns at a time. And there's months where we're getting close to a billion views, if we can play with that number quite a bit, depending on what the season is. But we're talking several Super Bowl ads a month in terms of impressions on, on TikTok and Instagram and, and Facebook, where that's our entire top of funnel marketing is that program now. And mm. that's... I think a differentiator because it's so top of funnel that as we've entered omni-channel, it complements all of those channels, right? It's not like a direct response to Shopify or a direct response to Target. It here's this product. I'm making you aware of it. You can go buy it. Any of the biggest retailers in the world or in the country or on Amazon, the biggest e-commerce platform in the world, right? So it's a very big top of funnel brand marketing type of operation with uh, very little reliance on bottom of funnel. Very cool. I love that. What, so you guys have grown that. I'm curious because a lot of the listeners are probably running some sort of company or part of an organization where they've even thought about or are currently testing this stuff. And I feel like there's a decent learning curve to it. What have you found helps create the greatest ROI when working with influencers? And that can be from how you incentivize them, how you get them excited about the products, like what type of content you're having them create. Like how do you guys think about some of those things? You know, first of all, I think it very much depends on the product. So our product, like I said, is a very wide TAM. So because of the wide TAM, we're able to reverse engineer the whole program based on just CPM, right? Like how much are we paying for every human that sees this product? And then we could get more granular and say how many females are seeing this product, how many females in the United States are seeing this product. But we pretty much base the entire program around maintaining X CPM. So the cost per thousand views for people who are digital marketers. And as long as we maintain this cost per thousand views, we could pretty much scale that, especially during certain seasons, we could scale that number pr pretty big. And for context, I'll give some round, rounded numbers here. A podcast ad, maybe this podcast, I don't know how, what you charge for ads, but you might be talking a $30 CPM. YouTube ad, you might be talking $60, $75 CPM. Our influencer program is well under, I won't say the number, but well under a $10 CPM. Nice. So we're getting very efficient views for a very efficient TAM. And it's just a, a recipe for success in that sense. I love that. Yeah, it's such an interesting space. I feel like I have a unique view into it. My girlfriend is an influencer, so I see her, like she makes a ton of income off of doing exactly what you, the flip side of what you're doing. And it's so interesting. One thing she shares a lot and when she communicates with brands is and understand, and it makes sense why it's really top of funnel for you guys, because for her, I am so willing to share this with the audience. They're probably not all going to go buy it from the first click, but the exposure and I can imagine, especially since you guys have gotten so deep in like the women who lift weights space, I'm sure women who aspire to these women who are in the gym looking really cool, drinking bloom, which just naturally happens that they're excited about it and they're trying those things over time, even if it's not like a direct, you're not seeing direct results on that investment. 
And I think allowing the creator to be the creator, they're the ones who knows how to, who know how to make the best content. I think I'm very against coupon codes. I'm very against affiliate links. So we have no attribution for this entire program. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Okay. So you're literally just telling them to share awareness, really. And you're not even asking for ROI on that partnership, really. They're paid when the video goes up based off of what our negotiation is prior to the video. That's um, awesome. If they're getting paid. And it could be for product. It could be, it could be it. But early negotiation prior to the video going out and wait, we let the creator be the creator. There's zero attribution. So most CMOs would have a heart attack. And yeah, that, that's how we've always ran it. Super cool. That's really interesting because I think a lot of people would assume and be like really tight butt about it. And we have to attribute it. We have to really understand that. But looking at a company as successful as yours and seeing that you can do it the way you are is probably really refreshing and an expansive view for a lot of people. What's your take on, and of course, it's going to be different for every company and every brand and affordability. Size of influencer audience, do you guys try to keep a really broad a broad spectrum, working with more micro-influencers and macro? Obviously, you guys probably have a lot of an ability to invest more in your influencers, so you have a broader range. But what's your take for your company? And then even if you were recommending a maybe newer, less well-funded CPG company, like how to approach something like that? I think a super high level, if you're, if you're working with one influencer, and let's just talk TikTok, it's the easiest channel to talk about. But it pretty much applies to any platform. Never just ask for one video because the algorithm is wildfire. If you go in any direction at any day, and if you're doing a proper, let's just say, A-B test, you need at least two videos before you make the decision on somebody to continue working with them. Mm -hmm. uh, so that, first and foremost, is very important. I would also say, like our simple credentials, for example, would be like over 10,000 views per video on average. If it's a female, which is generally the case, or at least they have female followings for our customer, make sure that. All right, chances are this is females following this page. Chances are they're in the United States, right? So th that's a guess we try to make. Now, if we're working with someone where we feel like half of their following is in Brazil, then we can only pay them half the amount because we don't have a TAM in Brazil. So figuring out how valuable that person's followers are to you, it should be very simple. Is it your TAM in the country that you sell your product in that would probably be interested in this product? And then... From there, I would say it's a very much like you have to shoot from the hip type of program. If you, the larger, the more people that you can work with, the better chance that one, a video is going to go viral, which is the best case scenario. But two, the, it, it, need, it needs to be a program at scale to work, which is the frustrating answer. Yeah. For a total startup with a very tight budget, I would honestly suggest whatever you're putting in the meta, cut that almost all the way to zero. And, and take a month and apply that entire budget over to influencers and see if you get similar results. And you can gauge those results. I do say zero attribution, but you'll see page views. This, as that video is going viral, you'll see page views. Even on Amazon, you'll see page views. So you can track these videos live time as granularly as you would like, even without a coupon code or a video link. And then as the program scales, it becomes less volatile, obviously. But the early days is really when the program's small and you have one video a day going out, that's when you can really see what's working and what's not. And then just apply yeah. those words. It's this simplicity scales. So the answer isn't as sexy and, and complicated as many people would like, but simplicity scales. I love it. Yeah, that's great. I, I feel like even if they want to hear some magic bullet answer, well, I, I really like, yeah, just test things. That's, a, that's the real answer, so, test things. And I, you know, you're, I also see on a creative level, which creatives keep, whether you're talking meta, whether you're talking influencer, 
You need to let the creator make a video that's going to do well on the algorithm. You're at the, this entire program is at the discretion of the algorithm. So if the pro, if the video is here's Grease, this is why you should buy it. No one's going to continue watching that past one second. So yeah. it's almost like on one end of the spectrum, product placement in a movie, right? Like it just happens to be in the background of a video that's going viral. That's one end. And then you could get a little bit more direct response and say, hey, like in within the first 10 seconds, if you're doing a morning routine, oh, this is this new green, this new greens bloom drink that I love. But a video that's 30 seconds about this product is going to get 10 views, no matter who makes the video. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, even my girlfriend, Angela, she'll share very similar sentiments. Like these brands will come to her and be like, you need to tell them all about the value proposition of this magnesium supplement and how it's going to change their life and the scientific differences between our, and she's no, that's literally not going to work. And, you know, I'm not you a gut. If you want to use that type of creative and UGC like meta ads, where you're actually like using money to deploy that video in front of people, that may work. But if you're letting that just ride the organic discretion of the algorithm, it needs to be entertaining. Yeah. And you need the algorithm's rules. Well, that. I feel like that is just something, just in general, like engaging fun content. You look at the reason something like Joe Rogan pops off and more people pay attention to that. It's fun. Like you can be lazy, you can consume it and it'll stick. People like the idea of consuming Huberman content all the time and they're probably not. So it, it makes a lot of sense that you want to have that like fun, engaging, positive energy associated to your brand. Yeah, and on the note of Joe Rogan Huberman, just as I, I'm a consumer myself, I, I love buying things from Facebook ads or, or podcasts. Frequency is important. If you're like, oh, Huberman's always talking about them. That's so powerful compared to an individual mention. Another frustrating answer is maybe it will take 10 videos from that one. Influencer. Yeah. Months and months. Yeah. Isn't that the marketing sentiment is it takes at least seven touch points, seven to 10, whoever, whatever you talk about to actually make that purchase. And it's like the first four times you hear about something, you probably don't even, it may or may not even register in your brain. And it is that seventh or eighth hit. They're like, oh, I've been hearing a lot about ice baths lately or yeah, yeah, green thought. Very cool. Maybe I heard seven people talk about this. Yeah, exactly. I just didn't mention it seven times. Hundred percent. But it's like a, it's definitely like a critical mass thing that snowballs and eventually see literally everyone talking about it and across the broad range. I'm curious, are you guys mostly? Do you guys expand beyond like the nutrition influencer space? Because when I think of something like AG One, it's on like Lex Friedman's podcast and like everything, and it's almost ridiculous of how like broad those people are are targeting. I'm just curious your strategy. Do you guys keep it pretty niche focused, or have you expanded and tried a lot of different demographic I would, groups? I would say that our worst converting influencers are are in the fitness space. Really uh, interesting. Our TAM is the normal American female, and so therefore that's what people are watching is the normal American female. You know, we're sold in Target, we're sold in Walmart. This is where mass America is shopping. And it's, they are influenced or educated by Mass America as well. So even before Bloom existed, when we were just scrolling Mari's page and we would do influencer marketing around Mari's page, we would always get a higher click-through rate on pages or on categories of pages that were not already in the fitness space. Greatest example was like when we were selling like a fitness PDF, our best performing ads would be on food pages. You know what I mean? Like someone looking at like the, the best cheeseburger in LA. Yeah. You know what I mean? So catch them where they're, yeah. 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 If you're a food lover, you probably want to buy a workout guide in January 1st. Right? That makes a lot of sense. It's, it's the reality of trying to catch them where they're not already seeing all those ads. I love that. But you brought up a few times that you guys have scaled into a lot of these really large retailers. 
what has that journey looked like for you? Was it just like capitalizing on your e-commerce growth and your like Instagram aware like platform? How did you guys make that jump from online to retail? So we were doing pretty well on Amazon at the time, which Amazon is definitely a barometer of the entire American demand. So that's a great data point to bring over to the retailers as you're trying to pitch them. And I was probably pitching or we were pitching Target first. Like we reverse engineered this product to be the Target girl. Whether or not that was intentional, that's what we did. And we were pitching to Target. We want to bring this greens and superfoods into your store. And this is 2022, early, like Q1 2022. And they were like, no, we've tried every superfoods brand and they all flopped. And now we're replacing all of those with just more collagen because collagen would sell. Mm-hmm. And after begging for through, through August, October, I was like, please just put us as many stores as you would like. It'd be a few hundred stores of your 2,500 for Target, let's say. Put us on the bottom shelf and let's just show you what we can do. And so finally, that's what we got. We got 600 stores on the bottom shelf with one forward facing berry greens. And from the jump, we were a top five selling SKU across the entire Target catalog of OTC and vitamins. And so I was like, I was a spoiled brat from e-commerce. And I was like, all right, so put us in full chain now. Like it's about to be resolution season. What are you doing? And they're like, that's not how retail works. Our next reset was called a reset when they like redo all their shelves. Yeah. It's in, it's in next October of the year. And when I'm a pretty aggressive spender and marketer, I was like, all right, here's a million dollars. Put us in full chain. I don't care where you put us in the store. I just need to be there for resolution season. And they were like, oh, obviously it was a little more complex than that, but this, this story sounds better. Uh, sure. But that is what happened. So I said, here's a million dollars. Put us anywhere in the store. From there, we were pretty much the number one selling SKU through driving. We have a digital consumer with an omni-channel shopping behavior, right? Like they were already going to Target every Saturday or Sunday. And we just needed to make sure that they knew that we were there. We said, okay, this isn't going to be our highest converting channel. It's not going to be our most efficient marketing channel. But if we prove ourselves in Target, then they're going to roll out the red carpet for us in later 2023 and it'll make all of this worth it. So we were playing the long game. So I said, so they put us in full chain. I mean, our peak week of sales in February were the highest week of sales for a single SKU in the history of OTC and, and supplements. So it's more than Quest ever did, more than Vital Proteins ever did, well, more than Flonades ever did. You know, with OTC. <laughs> sure. um, unless it's allergy season, that Flonades goes crazy. But no, but we, were, we had the record. And from there, they slowly added a couple more SKUs and... Now for new year, new you forward, we're going to be the face of target supplements. And we are very, once you can succeed in target, it's a great, again, barometer for how you'll perform in other retailers. So we've had pretty good conversations with other retailers. We launched in Walmart in March, full chain, which you're talking 5,000 stores. You're talking to a very different consumer than target. And, but we, we have the same exact SKU there, the same exact price, $29.99 for 25 servings. It's a slightly less expensive overall product than we sell online which I think complements the whole ecosystem very well. Influencer marketing complements retail very well. And I think a lot of companies think that they can just launch into these retailers and not say anything. We're not even telling them that they're necessarily there. They do one fun launch from the jump and then hope that it, it stays strong. But we do regular, one, we do paid ads constantly, evergreen. But we also do regular, like high hype, one week out of a month, pushing this retailer really strong through our influencer campaigns and or paid campaigns or just our organic posts. Cause at this point we have a very large following on the different channels. I'm just a balloon. Nice. And is that, so is that geo like location specific if you're launching in certain, so, so some of those retailers said we're like in different locations, they're yeah. kind of curious. That's a tough one. Like for Target and Walmart, it's pretty across the board. Yeah, across the board. sure. For example, in 2024, we'll launch in Wegmans. 
right? Which is a grocery store in the Northeast. That will be an example of geotargeting. What I would add in terms of retail is retail retailers is credibility and validity for your brand, right? So if we're talking mostly or someone listening right now is a D2C digital brand, social media brand, I don't care if you have 300,000 followers on your brand page, nothing brings more validity to a social media brand than a target, than a Walmart and insert brand, because sorry, insert retailers. Chances are that retailer has very loyal consumers. And when you launch there, people are going to recognize like, oh, this Walmart that I trust is standing behind this greens power. And yeah. so even if you had to geo-target and you're saying yours in 600 stores, you shouldn't do that. Or if you felt like you had to geo-target because they're only in certain locations, you shouldn't do that because it's going to drive up your conversions on Amazon and Shopify as well, because people are going to be like, oh, wow, Target, Walmart stands behind this product. I'm going to go to Amazon and buy it right now. Right. Mm -hmm. So it, it complements the entire ecosystem and brings that credibility, validity that every digital branch is desperate for credibility and credentials around their product. So no matter where that actual retailer is, you should blast that across your entire network uh, because it will increase conversions everywhere. I love that. Don't yeah. So really the omni-channel focus, being able to bring people using the social media to drive more awareness when they end up randomly showing up in those stores that they're targeting. They have that aha moment. They're more excited to buy the product. And then it really is like a cyclical cycle that feeds itself. Absolutely. Definitely. Very cool. Love that. So you guys have obviously been really successful. Uh, you're, you know, it sounds like you're targeting more retail locations. What else is on the horizon for you guys as you continue to grow? We definitely have some exciting product innovation lined up for 2024 that I think people are really hyped to see. But in terms of, I think a mistake that I made for 2023 was not planning our additional doors for 2024. So back to what I was saying about the, the speed that retailers can move. If I'm talking to retailers on October 27th, today that we're recording this, I'm not launching until October 2024. Yeah. So I would say figuring out those next doors for us and being selective and where we want this product to be, but also trying to expedite that launch as much as I can using some of the, the data that we have to get those retailers excited. But I would say just overall distribution of this product and distribution outside of the United States. Is our mm. That's exciting. And makes no sense. You're already finding some success here. You might as well scale that. Yeah, it's funny because one of the side effects of influencer marketing, I, I alluded to this earlier, is a lot of people in Mexico, in Europe, in the UK, Canada, are already seeing this product, but they have nowhere they can buy it. Right? Yeah. Because a lot of these influencers have 20% outside of the United States of their following, right? So we need to address that, that market that, or that demand that already exists in those countries. Not, Not a bad problem to have to solve as an entrepreneur. It's a pain in the ass to get a supplement over in Canada. So it is, it's a, it's a pain, pain problem, but it's uh, sure. uh, at least it's worthwhile when you do solve it. Yeah. And get, yeah. I think so. There we go. I love it. Very cool. So we talked a lot about the successes and the highlights and what happened behind the scenes to get there. I'd love to hear you spoke about one of those things you wish you had done a bit differently this year with the real retailers. What are some of the other biggest challenges or things you might've done differently, especially as you were starting? I'd, I'd love to really speak to those. Yeah. So would love to hear what are some of the things that you might've done differently or in your journey that I've been told this year, I was very, not that I was opposed, but I was just so head in the sand and also focused on Bloom that I didn't network at all. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm starting to network and meet other founders who 
guess what? They've already gone through some of the problems that you're going through, or they already have tried out some of the things that you're thinking of trying out and they can let you know whether or not they work and you can avoid that potentially huge mistake. So continuing to network and just create symbiotic relationships with as many founders as I can, as well as I was pretty anti hiring people with experience up until mm -hmm. the last six months. I didn't want anyone brainwashed from other companies was my mindset. And as a result, we have a very young, nimble, fast moving, social media obsessed team. But bringing in some people with experience for certain sides of the operation can bring so much value to point where like one hire, even you know, we're over 50 people now, just one hire can bring so much value to this company because of what they've learned from the other companies that they're coming from. So hiring people with experience, even though, even if it's out of our comfort zone, salary wise or expense wise, recognizing the real value that person brings, they'll pay for themselves 10 times over, as well as continuing to network with other founders and not even necessarily other founders, but other marketers, other high up positions at other companies. Yeah. That's definitely a commonality that I hear from successful founders or business leaders is making that investment in people. And it does yeah. feel like a maturity thing that comes over time. Cause when you're starting out, you're scrappy. You want to stretch every dollar as far as possible, but that does seem to be a sentiment that if you reward high quality, high caliber people, they will stick around for a long time. They'll create so much efficiency in your business. And it can be a truly a way to differentiate yourself from competitors. Yeah. And as you get your name out there, depending if your company wants funding, or if you even want to necessarily send, sell that company one day, that's a customer. You're selling that, that company, whether it's 30% of it or whether it's 100% of it to a customer. And you need to be growing your awareness to that customer base, that TAM of acquirers earlier than later. That we're bootstrapped, we've never taken on funding. Like a lot of the people running similar businesses to ours are and or have. And recognizing the entire market as a market and not as this evil thing that you just communicate with as needed, like yeah. you need to sell to those people and get them excited about this thing that you're selling. I love that. So you mentioned you're bootstrapped. That's really interesting. And honestly, just congratulations. Cause like, I can imagine that wasn't easy. So early in that chapter of growth, you're self-funded. How are you prioritizing your investments? Like you had to stretch your dollars. Was it, obviously you spent a lot on marketing. Was that predominantly where you're trying to allocate most of your resources or how did that look for you guys? I'm a marketer. I'm a big believer in marketing. Um, I always felt like that would have the, the, the biggest benefit long-term. Um, so it wasn't headcount. It wasn't growing the team. It wasn't, um, it, expanding the product line and investing in R&D. This product hasn't changed formula in the, in the three, three years that we've had it. So yeah, I would say once you have a big believer of hero scoop, look at a vital proteins, look at Bloom, look at shit, even Tesla only have four cars. I'm a big believer in a hero. I think the future of supplementation, especially is I buy my greens from Bloom, my collagen vital proteins and my mm -hmm. protein powder from Orgain, let's say, and that's okay. Six yeah. years ago, it used to be like, I want to sell them their entire supplement portfolio, but their, their pantry will just be blown products. I'm not, I don't feel that way. And as a result, once we had this product that you, oh, this is our home run. I'm going to put all of my energy and focus into growing awareness about this home run product that we have. Sure. So that's, I, guess, I think that answers your question. Yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. I feel like operational efficiency pushing one thing really hard, everyone yeah. 
and, and you're really optimizing everything. So the product will be optimized, the messaging, like everything will be better related to that one product. So it makes sense. Yeah, hundred percent. And it, it's the, the consumer recognizes that. I think that's what they'd make. And that's what I'm going to get. It's one product they make really well. Totally. Yeah, it's really interesting. That makes me think about, there's even some really, truly great supplement companies here in Austin that are probably a little bit smaller scale. And one in particular, I love a few of their products and they've done everything. And some of them are good, but some of them are like really not good. And it does have an effect on the brand perception a little bit. Uh, yeah. Which I think is really interesting. Yeah, if you mess up a product, it will do more harm than the, the good of making another good product. I yeah. know. So interesting. So when you think, so there's obviously been a lot of interesting tech changes in the landscape, all the crazy AI stuff, the hype around that. What do you think, if you look a few years out in digital marketing, like what are some trends that you're curious about? Or what are you really paying attention to? I'm very bullish on TikTok shop. Uh, I am not currently for sale on TikTok shop for a number of reasons, but so we have not done it yet, but I'm, I'm seeing the opportunity. I'm seeing it like the early days of Amazon. I'm seeing it like everything that. Instagram shop probably was trying to become, I, I think it's going to be the modern day QVC. And so I'm pretty damn bullish on TikTok shop. And I think it's going to, it's going to create some of the next big products that we see, especially in Z. Interesting. Yeah. I think people who have deep dive and really followed the media coverage on TikTok shop probably have an intuitive guess on why you feel that way. But if you're willing to unpack that, like, why do you think it's going to gain traction and why do you think it will be the next Amazon? I see specifically TikTok users loving Amazon. So if we see a, a, a video get a million views on TikTok, they're go, we see a huge spike in Amazon sales or Amazon mm-hmm. peak that day. That Gen Z TikTok consumer is, wants an easy to convert UI platform to shop. And it's so inefficient that they need to leave where they're learning about that product. So if they can learn about the product, be enticed to buy the product, and then on that same screen, buy the product with an efficient checkout process, that's huge. So for example, if I run a Facebook ad right now on it, or an Instagram ad through, through Meta, and I swipe up on the story, takes me to a, it's basically an incognito window of my website. Mm-hmm. And I need to click checkout. It's a, again, it's a cold window that I need to put my huge credit card number in. It's so annoying that yeah. you've already lost me. Mm-hmm. And so... If you can just eliminate that huge pain in the ass because Instagram doesn't want you to leave their platform, so they like open the window, the Safari window there, I think it's I think it's going to be tremendous. And conversion rate is everything. That's why Amazon's Amazon. Yep. Love that. Very cool. And who knows? That might even assuming that goes well, maybe Instagram will even revise their experience and you get the best of both worlds. And it's just like better shopping for everyone. I can now they they've tried a few times. We haven't been able to scale that at all uh, as they tried to update it and, and optimize it, but maybe be nice. Who knows? Sounds super cool. So you mentioned again a few times here, your growth on Amazon. Are there anything you did specifically that you felt made you successful in those early days of that growth? Or, and, or what would you recommend for a newer brand starting on Amazon? I think important. it very much complements influencer marketing. Again, especially if a Gen Z consumer who loves Amazon. So if you can have a super efficient experience for it, for the TikTok viewer to shop, which is Amazon, that, that's very complimentary. I think that's really all it is. Obviously you need to have a good product. 
uh, you know, for, for people to go to Amazon. Also, I would say treating Amazon like a social media. So making sure your content's on point on Amazon is a make or break situation. You're, we're in an era of people very quickly subconsciously recognizing quality or low quality, high quality or low quality content. Yeah. And then that, that's pretty much it. It's just a, a great platform to have your product on if you're doing a lot of influencer marketing. I would also say it complements meta marketing though. Like when we drop our meta budget, we see our Amazon traffic dip quite a bit. We operate all of our meta with a blended CAC. And because we have a very, our Shopify's are by far our smallest channel. And so if we were just running met, our meta budget for just Shopify, it would be the worst ROAS in the history of, <laughs> of, of meta. But um, it's, it's clearly where the digital consumer is doing most of their shop. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Very interesting. So you're deep in the marketing. You're the marketing nerd guy behind Bloom. I'm curious, <laughs> in the best way possible, because clearly you've reached so much success. What has your wife, Mary, been? Like, what is she focused on as you're like just crushing the marketing side of things? Like, what is her evolution of the, the founder face been? Mari just like very much understands the psychology of like why somebody buys something or doesn't. She's very good at saying no to things where I'm always saying yes to things. So one of our best like yin yangs, just as co-founders is like her saying no, which has kept us very focused on the things that we're good at and, and not taking chances on things that wouldn't have been a good opportunity. I would say she's now very much as the influencer. So up until two years ago, she was the only person talking about the brand. Right now, we've built the influencer program large enough where a lot of people are learning about Bloom who don't yet know who Mari is, and then they learn who Mari is. Mm -hmm. So the whole like customer journey has changed quite a bit in the last 18 months. But I would say now her focus is just, again, just top of funnel, expanding her her following, her, her personal brand awareness, and therefore that trickles down into Bloom. Like she's still very much the face of Bloom and she's in the office five days a week going over mostly brand and, and product innovation. She's very active in, in everything, honestly, both of us are, or mostly in meetings together, but her big thing is design and merchandising and branding. Love that. Sounds like you guys really do have a good balance of skill sets you bring to the table. Yeah. Cover yeah. all the bases. Yeah, very much. Neither of us are going to finance. Neither of us are good with accounting. Neither of us are good with supply chain and operations. But so we've hired for those roles. Hence hiring people with skills and yeah. past experience. That's for sure. For in those categories, especially. Fair enough. I guess that's part of the journey. Start small, bootstrap it, hustle, grow, fill the gaps. Very cool. Yeah. Really appreciate it. This has been a really fantastic conversation. And honestly, huge congrats to your growth. Like, the company's been alive for 2019 to 20. It's been about four years. And we guys have reached some massive growth. So really cool to hear that. For anyone listening who's like on a similar path, who do you think that, what are you, what do you think are some of the best resources out there to learn this? What are some of the most important skills to, to master? If you have a couple hours a day to learn, like what would you recommend people really double down on? And of course, different stages of business obviously require different levels of learning, but what do you think of the core skills worth investing in? And do you have any people in, in those various spaces that you think are really interesting and really well worth following? I think, first of all, don't be afraid to reach out to somebody who is in that respected spot or whoever this, whoever the listener respects. Chances are they're open to talking about it and having you pick their brand. Like, chances are they're very open to it. And but what I would say is as a marketer, understanding influencer marketing, I think that is very simple. 
There's not much to understand there. You could have a web campaign in Meta and scale your business pretty large. We did. We scaled our business to nine figures with one campaign. I would say understanding influencer marketing and recognizing that can't really be outsourced. Like it's relationship management. We of our influencer network, we know their birthdays, we know their anniversaries. They're coming and visiting our headquarters all the time. Like that's a relationship to manage, just like how your customers a relationship to manage. And I would say the last thing is yeah, just continuing to to trial and error and understand the very quickly changing climate that is social media. So once you get comfortable with something, if it's been over two months, chances are it's changing and we catch ourselves doing what, what has always worked, which is not the answer. It, it's changing quarterly at, at, and that's, you know, that's a conservative. So yeah, those three things, you know, but that's coming from the perspective of somebody with a social media influencer brand. Sure. Yeah. That's why it's great. Always, of course. And that's why anyone out there, the hope is that they're trying to cover all their bases, but to get to go deep with someone who's got really deep ex expertise and experience in marketing, I think really helps hit home on at least that competency. Totally. And I'm a big fan of a founder, a public founder. Look at Prime, look at Bloom, look at, look at even Alani New, just some people in our space. They all have a public face to the brand. And I think that's necessary, 2023. Totally. Cool. That leads me to our last question. For the audience that wants to follow you, maybe connect with the, with Mari or the Bloom brand and just really get to see the day-to-day -day behind the scenes or, or some of the more content you're putting out, where are the best places for people to find you? Yeah, just search Bloom on Instagram. You'll find her handle. Mari's Mari Llewellyn. She has a wild Welsh last name, but if you type in Mari LL, it will probably come <laughs> And then uh, we're not too hard to find. We're decently active on LinkedIn as well. Or cool. at least up below myself are. So... Yeah, check us out. And uh, we're not hiding anything. You can go see what we're doing on TikTok. You can go see what we're doing on Amazon and just copy and paste that for yourself and see if it works. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I remember in the tech background and the number one hack people always say is build in public. So it's like if you want to gain traction yeah. on your thing, just do it because people want to hear the stories and it, it's really cool. So I, I, mean, I love how you guys are. You can go on anyone's Facebook ad library and see their entire catalog of Facebook. You can type in a brand on TikTok and type in their hashtag or whatever it is and see all of their influencers posted. Um, it's, it's very easy to see what brands that are succeeding are doing. It's very hard on the current climate to hide anything you're doing. So you know, analyze brands that you think are doing a good job and you'll take away a lot. All that. Really appreciate the expertise and the wisdom. I've definitely learned a ton from this conversation and I know our audience has as well. So Greg, thank you so much for being here today. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks for listening.